Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme, by the way, Met Aaron have issued a yellow status warning for us here in Munster. It's kicking in from tomorrow morning and it remains in place until Sunday. And the reason for the status yellow warning is that they believe temperatures here in Munster uh, will could hit highs of 29 degrees, could even go a little bit higher. And nighttime uh, heat is not going to dip below 15 degrees Celsius. So it's going to be very very uh, mild and muggy and sticky and last night I have to say was the first night that I really really found it very warm. I do live in a two story house and the upper half of the house just builds up the heat all day long and even with windows open it was absolutely sweltering. Duvets were being fired off uh, last night. It really was one of those warm warm uh, nights and certainly by all accounts last night is not the warmest of it. It is to get warmer. Uh, Day after day you can see the temperature is rising and then night after night it's going to get uh, warm again and while all of that is going on of course Irish Water getting extremely uh, worried. They were already saying that demand rose 7.5% in the country last week and with with this hot weather forecast certainly for the rest of this week and into the weekend the situation is expected to become even more challenging for Irish Water. Now special measures have already been put in place in about 15 areas around uh, the country. They're mainly in the Midlands, but some of them are with us here in the South. And that's to ensure the taps will keep flowing. And about another 60 areas are still on Irish Waters watch list. And that's over concerns that they won't be able to keep up with with the demand. And what they're now sort of saying is that water restrictions would possibly be needed in the weeks ahead. And that's because there's very little rain forecast and actually yesterday, Irish Water added Clonakilty and the surrounding areas to its list of areas where nighttime restrictions uh, were necessary. And nighttime restrictions, if you are in Clonakilty, you probably already know this, they kick in between 11 o'clock at night and 7am in the morning. And the fear is that more more and more areas, particularly the 60 that are on the watch list, Clonakilty had been on the watch list, but then it got moved up to areas where they have to put nighttime restrictions in. And they're fearful, particularly like Clonakilty would be a, a tourist area as well. Uh, the fear is that over the coming weeks, the tourist areas will come under a lot of pressure. But if we don't get 
if we get little or no rain and at the moment Miss Erin are saying little or no rain is forecast uh, then we, we could have more and more areas and more water restrictions needed right across the, the country uh, so be careful please with your water usage we will be discussing uh, the weather in more detail on the programme and trying to find out how long is this wonderful dry period it is great and, and you know the, for most of us we are enjoying it you do need to be careful in this warm weather uh, but we just want to know how long more is it going to last and actually staying it is kind of weather related as well there are concerns being raised for the welfare of the wild goat that is used at Puck Fair and this obviously is to do with the high temperatures that we're expecting across the country including in Kerry over the rest of this week. Some people are talking about what happens in Puck Fair as indefensible and barbaric. I mean anyone who's ever been to Puck Fair will know there is a long running uh, tradition that a wild goat is captured in the weeks leading up to Puck Fair and then it is put up on a high stand overlooking Kilorglin where it remains in place for the three days of the festival and the reason we're talking about it is today is the 10th of August which is the day that Puck Fair uh, kicks off in Kerry and it will run the 10th, 11th and 12th but it's the heat this year in particular that has prompted calls for the Department of Agriculture to get involved and to get involved on on the animal welfare ground. Now the people behind the festival they are insisting that the goat is always well looked after. It's a tradition that has been in place now. It's been running, I think, for around 400 years. The chairman of Puck Fair is a gentleman by the name of Declan Falvey. He's defended the practice, pointing to animal welfare protocols that they've always had in place at the festival. And they're now saying that they will put a fan beside the goat if needed. I could nearly tell you it will be needed because it's going to be a scorching hot day in Kilorglin today and indeed for the rest of uh, the week. Now, The Festival Committee are pointing out that this is a wild mountain goat and it's used to living on uh, heights and they have the utmost respect for the feelings of the goat. And while I I accept it is a wild mountain goat and by all accounts these wild goats are hardy animals and, you know, is used to living in all kinds of conditions. I just don't know if a wild animal is in, will ever get used to living in a small pen that's hoisted nearly five, fifty feet above the town of Kilorgland. That surely is not the natural environment for a wild goat. Anyway, the festival chairman said they have a very proud tradition. They are upholding it. They're very proud that they have an unblemished record of looking after the welfare of the goat. And they say if it means putting a fan on board, then that will be done. They'll regularly take the goat down and take a look at it and inspect it. But they're still not talking about not putting the goat up. I'm assuming has it gone up and is it is it in place um, all uh, already? And I mean, what you have to remember as well with this very warm weather that we have at the moment, we're constantly hearing from people like the ISPCA, Dogs Trust. Indeed, Jane Pickett, our own resident vet, will join us tomorrow on the programme talking about animal welfare during warm weather. And in particular, you know, if you're a dog owner, don't be walking your dog in the midday sun. Get your dog out early in the morning or in the evening time. And that test of putting your hand on the tarmac. And if you can't hold your hand on the tarmac for longer than 10 seconds, it means it's too warm for the paws of a dog. You know, so we're always told to make sure you give the dogs lots lots of shade. And wasn't it last month when we had a couple of days of 
really warm weather. We had one of our listeners contact us who was absolutely distraught because a much loved pet had died of heat stroke. They thought that they'd done everything right. They'd fed the dog left water out for the dog they thought there was enough shade for the dog in the morning and when they went to check the dog on in the afternoon it was dead it had died of a heat, heat stroke so that's what I'd be worried about with this animal wild animal suspended 15 metres high up I mean I don't know what kind of shade is contained in, in the box but even if there was shade in the box it would it's just going to get really, really warm up there. And the tradition is that the wild goat spends the bulk of the three days and the three nights on this stand overlooking uh, the town. And as I say, I've never been to Puck Fair, so I'm well aware of Puck Fair. I'm well aware of this tradition of catching a wild uh, goat, but I've never other than I've probably seen video footage of thinking about it of the goat in, in the cage it's a wild animal as well at the end of the day and I know they have vets on they have a local vet on board and they give it water and they, they feed it I mean I, I heard somebody say that they, they have a farmer who sources the best of heather now <laughs> how you know what the best of heather is I don't know and they do water and, and, and all of that but I'm assuming this this goat is going to need a lot more water than they normally give it and they're going to have to look out for the signs of heat stroke and it would be dreadful it would be absolutely dreadful for what is a family festival if anything was to happen to this goat in front of people if the goat was to suddenly collapse uh, for example because by all accounts heat stroke can come on very very quickly because that's you know we're told to you know watch your dog's excessive panting and all of that but like it literally can happen very very quickly and I assume because these goats are such hardy animals they're probably very stoic as well and maybe they wouldn't show that they were in distress I don't know enough about wild goats uh, to, to know and you know when people say okay it's a wild animal it's used to all kinds of you know snow in the winter time frost and extreme heat in the summer but surely if it was out on the out on the mountains where it would normally live it would have the sense as other animals do to head into a shaded area and to get as much water as it needs and you'd just be uh, I'd just be afraid if it's contained in a cage. That's not the natural environment for this uh, wild uh, goat. So the argument now is, is the fact that it is a 400 year tradition, we're losing so many of our traditions. Do we have to do everything that's possible to hang on to our traditions, particularly one that's been around for 400 years? Or should we be looking at the animal welfare side of this? And should they come up with some other way to symbolise the goat. Do we have to have in you know 2022 a wild goat taken out of its natural environment and placed in a cage and left in a cage for three days and three nights? By the way, the phone lines have been extremely busy uh, this morning. Uh, so apologies if we didn't get around uh, to your calls, but John Paul is really doing uh, his best. But you can always text and WhatsApp the programme with your comment as well to 086 to 103 103, which some people have already been doing, including Michael, who says, Patricia, anybody worried about a wild Wild goat in uh, Kilorklin at Puck Fair being five, 50 feet above the ground should really have a serious chat with people in the medical world because they need help, not the wild goat. The higher up he goes, the happier he is to be as far away from people as he can. Well, I'm assuming, yeah, the poor goat is terrified of uh, people, Michael. But are you saying that that's a natural environment? Is there not a fear factor? The fact that he is balanced so far up, I, I, I have a tendency to disagree. I do 
see the animal welfare uh, issue in it. But um, thank you for your thoughts and uh, comments, Michael. And Anthony says, Patricia, while you're talking about the very hot weather that we're having at the moment, I would like to give, a, I would really love to hear your listeners' thoughts on GAA clubs who are still holding underage hurling and football games this coming weekend. Bearing in mind that we have this um, status yellow uh, weather warning to do with heat. Anthony said there will be children under the age of eight, under nine and under tens. Surely there's a health risk here, especially with hurling as the children have to wear helmets while running around. I'm just wondering what other people think on this matter. Any other parents worried about their children going training in this hot weather? I'm assuming most of the training is it done in the morning times even though when you're looking at morning times where are we nearly half past 10 and it's already 21 degrees so it is already very warm out there anybody else worried about that sending their children off to GAA is the one Anthony's talking about I don't know if there's any other sports doing uh, training but particularly this weekend with the status yellow Warning for heat around your thoughts. Welcome to on that. 0862103103. You can text her WhatsApp. And then Dara in Bantry says, Patricia, listening to you on water shortages. How is it that in a country renowned for its rainfall, there isn't some initiative in place to store said water for times of shortage like we have now? Is this another example of how we excel in mediocrity in this country? Thanking you, and that's from Dara in uh, Bantry. Uh, call lines are open with uh, John Paul doing his best to answer as many calls as he can at 0818 103 Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Now, the UN Secretary General described recent artillery and rocket fire around Zaporizhzhia nuclear plant in central Ukraine. Ukraine as suicidal, further adding to fears of an accident at the plant, which we're told is the largest of its kind in Europe. ADO of Chernobyl Children's International has described the shelling of the plant as a crime against humanity. And uh, AD Roach joins me this morning. Good morning to you, AD. Good morning. And to be honest, I'm, I'm half afraid to ask you this question, but how worried are you if one of these reactors takes a direct hit? Um, actually, to be honest, Patricia, I'm afraid to even give you an honest answer or I'm afraid to acknowledge to myself what the real response to that actually is. Because, I mean, what we're doing is we're looking down the barrel of a gun and we're looking at um, potentially, and I hate to use words like this now, but I can't think of any other words to describe how on a precipice we are. But we could be facing some kind of an Armageddon because, and there will be no coming back from it. Absolutely none. Because Zaborogia is the jewel in the crown in terms of nuclear facilities in Europe. That's why I suppose the Russians decided to go right to the heart of that. Um, you know, it reminds me of when the Twin Towers kind of went, not only what did it slaughter human life, 3,000 people, but it also went at the heart of America because they were so symbolic for development and advancement, um, you know, in the States. And Zaborosia in the world of, you know, nuclear energy, 
that would have been kind of one of the pinnacles. And I know the plan well because I passed it uh, a couple of times in 1987, would you believe, a year after the Chernobyl disaster. So, Patricia, like, I mean, it's been a miracle. That's all I can say that it hasn't happened since the takeover in March of the power station. It is a miracle. But you and I both know you cannot, it's like playing Russian roulette. Our number will be up and miracles don't last forever. And at the moment, Patricia, one of the times I was talking to you, it seems like years ago now, but it was only in February, when we were looking at the takeover of Chernobyl and that is an area of interest, you know, for you because you followed it for 36 years. And at that time, we were kind of saying that modern warfare has changed forever because of that one single act of taking over the power station there and the surrounding exclusion zone, that they had started to use it as a weapon of war. Now, they left an incredible mess behind, but we were lucky that that didn't explode with all of the material that's there. Then they went off down to Zaporozhye and they have taken over there in March. They have used it really kind of as a shield because they know that the Ukrainians will try and avoid shelling across a nuclear power station. But it is happening. Both sides are accusing each other. Um, it's an act of terror. I, I actually honestly believe, Patricia, that we cannot act fast enough. We need to think creatively about how can we stop the fighting and make it a no-war zone. This is about not just our lives, Patricia, but it is the lives of our children and our grandchildren. It is it is all life on this planet as we know it. Yeah, because the, an accident um, at this plant, it won't just affect Ukraine. Uh, Patricia, that is the whole thing. Like, what bit of this aren't the powers that be not getting? Like, thanks be to God, that quote you gave, I actually thanked my mother in heaven for when he said that this is, this is like suicidal, what's happening here, you know, and he's saying, like, what have we learned from Hiroshima? You know, what have we learned? And when, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were incinerated with just two two single weapons, one in Nagasaki, one in Hiroshima. Um, and what part of this don't they get? That, like, you know, there's, there's no way that the other than getting them to withdraw on both sides, because there have been shellings on both sides over and back Friday, Saturday, they've knocked out the radiation monitoring equipment. Those sensors are gone. We can no longer have the capacity to detect any release of radioactivity or any leak of radiation. So we're talking about situations that could be deliberate strike, a stray missile kind of strike, the so-called friendly fire, all these misnomers. Or it could even be something else, Patricia, which, which nobody is talking about. Uh, but we, you and I spoke about it in February, about the stress the, Ukra- the Ukrainian workers in Chernobyl were under when they were under gunfire or, you know, under the barrel of a gun, under as hostages in the reactor. The same thing has happened, but, for, for, but it's worse in this nuclear power station. The workers that are there, lack of sleep, working in extreme conditions, literally under the barrel of the gun of the oppressors. It's a stressful job in in peace times, but put the element of fire, shelling all around them, explosions all around them, not enough sleep, not enough food, not enough water. It's a recipe for disaster because all it may take is a malfunction 
safety issue or psychological breakdown. Someone, someone just error. simply making making a, a mistake. A mistake. So it's plain and simple, isn't it? it? All nuclear facilities need to be off limits when it comes to warfare. Well, Patricia, I, I, honestly, what can I say? That is the most. That is the the best statement to make out of this. Of course, that should be the case. But everybody's pussyfooting around. Nobody wants to kind of be that direct. But why can't Ireland, as a neutral country, actually step into the fray? Because we chose not to go kind of down the nuclear route. So in a sense, we have kind of even the higher moral ground to kind of be the broker. And Patricia, you and I both know, and your listeners, that they managed to negotiate the grain agreement, which was fantastic because it has prevented particularly Africa from utter starvation. And there's grain on the way to Ireland, I, I thank God as well. But like they negotiated that in the middle of the war. Why can't they negotiate a no war zone, a oh, yeah. withdrawal and an agreement on both sides? It'll be, they will self, it'll be self, it'll be destruction of everybody on both sides of this war. And like the, the Ukrainians are doing their best to kind of hold back. But there are so many elements that we cannot control that can go wrong because the Russians are kind of using this station as a kind of a shield because they're holding 500 troops that we know of, but it could be a lot more there. And also they have a lot of their war paraphernalia there. So, and of course they know that the Ukrainians won't want to really do a direct strike on a nuclear facility because... They know, like they, they know the consequences. Do we, the consequences. Do we need experts to visit the plant from, say, the International Atomic Energy Agency? I heard t- talks that they, would, yes. they, that they might do that. Good point. They haven't been allowed so far. Um, They've been denied access. And that is, I mean, and they're making statements that, you know, how seriously on the edge we are with this and that there's an extreme danger and that it's a very fragile situation. Now, if that's the language they're using in PR terms, what must must, must they be really thinking? I mean, they didn't, it's not looking good for them getting in there, Patricia, because when we tried to get them into church, over when they when it was under occupant they weren't allowed in then after the troops were pushed out of Chernobyl and back to Belarus and back in on the other side into Ukraine when they eventually tried to get in the the withdrawing troops had blown up all the bridges had blown up all the roads and they couldn't get access would you believe Patricia the only way that this you know into like a a top technological place which, like, is really dangerous. The only way they could get in there was by small rowing boats. And that's how they got in there. And then they had to face all the damage. We were, do you know what? We escaped Armageddon then. That was in February and March and April. And now, so we are, the only way I can say it is that we are playing a kind of form of Russian roulette. uh, Ironically, with with the Russians, Jeff and Douglas says, is hitting uh, an operating reactor the equivalent of dropping an atomic bomb as dramatic as that sounds? God help us all. And and it is, isn't it? Well, can I say back to, to to your listener there in Douglas that in fact it would be maybe a couple of hundred times worse like it has, I mean, I remember when we used to talk, uh, Patricia, back in 1986-87-89, all those years ago, we had the figure of how many Hiroshima bombs was kind of, ex, you know, exploded up into the environment and it was something like 200. So this, which is a much bigger capacity, much more radiation capacity, like much more radioactive material there, um, 
like, I mean, the only word I can say is it's like we're talked about mega death. Mega death and like the world would, like it'd be hard enough it, with the conventional war in Ukraine to actually, rec- for Ukraine to recover, it's going to take decades, decades. And that's just with the conventional war damage. But if this goes nuclear from the, the plant, um, there won't be any recuperation. I mean, there won't be anybody to come in and rescue us because, it's as you said earlier, it's not just the territory of Ukraine and Russia. It is the entire landmass of Europe, including ourselves, and it will also be the rest of the world because it will travel yeah. around the world. That's what it does. That's what it does. OK, and just very finally, Aidy, how are your projects uh, getting on on the ground? Oh, well, listen, it's nice to finish. Uh, thanks, Patricia, because otherwise, I, I, you know, I, 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 I could almost weep in despair at what's going on there. The great news is we have never failed the, the children of Belarus, the children of Chernobyl there. And while Belarus is complicit in the war, they're facilitating the war. I keep on saying to people, our covenant for 36 years is with the children and with the people. And we will not be chased out of this work by regimes that we were that were there longer than <laughs> and we'll be there long after them so the work is continuing even though it's remotely all our staff there are do taking the kids on wonderful um, summer camps and everything and in Ukraine itself we have three programs we've got in two cardiac missions we're planning on another two in September and hopefully I'll be on to coming close to Christmas about it and also we've taken throughout the summer hundreds of children from the Chernobyl zone, which where where they were um, under the bunkers of when they were occupied for five weeks, but then they came out and they suffered from radiation poisoning because the radiation has been re-released from the land. And we've sent them to a summer camp in the beautiful Carpathian Mountains, Gorgeous. which is a zillion miles away. Because you know Ukraine is such a vast territory, yeah. and we actually have a camp going there at the moment. We have fifty children there, and another fifty going in about two weeks' time, and we're also sending in food, water, all of all of the practical things into that region that has been recontaminated because of the war. Patricia, now we're working on because this war is not going to be over uh, like unfortunately anytime soon. We're actually going to winterize all these projects. So we're going to have to continue on an indefinite period to get the aid in and to get the children out to safe places so they can be children once more. And we couldn't do that without the wonderful generosity of your listeners. And and people are, are still donating all the time to you. Well, they are, Patricia. Thanks be to God, because like we were hit by the Ukrainian crisis, which obviously hit the you know the the coffers because like we hadn't any budget for Ukraine. We were just doing our cardiac work there, which is extensive work, but like we weren't we hadn't we weren't going expanding it, and now we've had to expand because the needs are so great. But listen, you know what? Like we've never been daunted before, Patricia. We've never been, even when we're down, <laughs> we're, we still get up. And we live to fight another day. Well and we will not be found wanting. Well done. Patricia. And uh, people can donate online uh, Chernobyl Children uh, International. Listen, Aidy, pleasure as always uh, to talk with you. Look after yourself and stay safe. And thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Patricia.
Street. Good morning to you. That is Eddie Roach. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now, a number of weeks ago, I spoke with my next guest, Sheila Cassidy, who is the chairwoman of the Queen of the Detroit United Irish Society's programme. And she was talking about bringing the Queens to Ireland. And she promised that when they landed in Cork, she would join me in studio along with the two queens and I'm delighted to say Sheila is opposite me along with Claudia Ray and Sarah Gum and I forgot to ask who's who Claudia I'm Sarah Sarah and Claudia good morning to you all and you're very welcome and both girls looking just gorgeous with your crowns it really is fantastic Uh, Sheila when did you when did you arrive well we arrived here in Ireland on Thursday and we were uh, arrived here on Sunday here in Cork all of us actually managed to get here within the 20 minute time so We've hit the road going wild, crazy, and enjoying so much of Cork since we've been here. And you've obviously brought the sun with you. We have. You know, uh, back home it's 90-something. We actually had a record high of 107 last Sunday Why we've been here. So I guess we were in the cold weather now. <laughs> oh, can you explain why you've got two queens with you? You normally travel with one. Yes, we normally travel with one. We Every year a queen is, is crowned with a court. So Claudia was crowned in 20, and... Um, course we under under conditions we couldn't continue traveling nor have our event so Claudia gave up two years of her time to continue representing the Irish community in Detroit Went down. and here in Cork because we do have a partnership with County Court Council so we would not let her go without coming to Ireland representing as she promised to do as we as well and then in 2022 Sarah is the current so from saying that, I'm going to let the girls talk. Okay, let me, yeah, let me let me talk with uh, Claudia uh, first. Uh, your Irish connections, Claudia. Yes. Yeah, so um, my mom's side, my grandparents are from County Mayo, so we've got Island eighty, Island eighty near Castle Bar, and we actually have a family home where my grandmother's from on Ackle Island. You look so Irish. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if many people tell you that. You, they you, do. You've got the and you've got the, you've the pale skin as well. Oh yeah. So you obviously don't take to the sunshine. That no, much. I even that, got burned a couple oh. of days ago here. <laughs> that would be ironic. If you <laughs> and this isn't your first trip to Ireland. No, this is my fifth trip. So where do you normally go when you, when you come? We normally stay right. in Mayo near in, in um, Ackle, and we have a family home. Yeah. So we Mayo. got lucky that got passed down and stayed in the family. Mayo's beautiful. It is. It's my favorite part. Cork's even better. <laughs> you'll get you'll get to find out that. And then the current queen is uh, Sarah Gum. Sarah, tell me your Irish connections. Yes. Yeah, so I have connections on both sides of my family. My mom and my dad's. Um, we're a little bit more in tune with my mom's side. Okay. I have family from Limerick, and I also have family from Kilkenny. And they sailed over. Actually, we're a little bit more far removed. They came over in the, like the mid eighteen hundreds, around oh, wow. eighteen forty five. So right as famine the times. famine was hitting, yep. yeah. Um, but we're still very um, in connection with our roots. And this is my second time back. Is it, where where were you for the first time? First time, my sister and I both competed um, competitively Irish dancing for about uh-huh. twelve years. Okay. My sister was a bit better than I was. She competed at the world championships twice. So we were in Dublin back in two thousand and seventeen. Uh, I know Sheila, who's jumped up from. The, from the microphone because she doesn't want to speak anymore you were you were the Irish dancer as well weren't you yes, yeah yeah. yeah see we've, we've got the Irish do you still do the Irish dancing so I had to give up Irish dancing as I moved on to university okay but 
I still will get out there and do a, a little did? jig anytime you ask. <laughs> Claudia, do you Irish dance? I did not. Did no. you not? No, no, neither did I. So don't worry about it. We're not. We're not all great gifted Irish dancers. John Paul O'Shea, Councillor John Paul O'Shea, sit down there. Uh, do you, well, you don't Irish dance. You're set dancing, isn't it? Yes, um, yeah. we do a lot of kiddie dancing and yeah. um, set dancing. But yeah. the girls uh, did their best. Uh, they went dancing at the crossroads on Sunday night. So it was the first introduction I was to, go- I was to Cork. Um, <laughs> but it's great because, like, I, when I was mayor back in 2015-16 we started this, pa- this partnership with Detroit yeah. and in particular with Corktown in Detroit there's a, a town in Detroit called, called Corktown yeah. I wasn't aware of that until we had Sheila on the programme and it simply is because so many people immigrated from Cork out yeah. there and I suppose there's a great Ford connection there uh, Patricia as well uh, so they got a, a lot of employment out there so as I said there's a great connection there we were delighted that um, the United Irish Societies came back and connected with us in Cork County Council first and we've been going with this partnership ever since so it's great to see that they're coming back every year and obviously we go out and partake in their St. Patrick's Day Parade every yeah. year as well. Claudia, what did you make of the crossroads dancing? Oh, it was wonderful. It was, you know, something you, we've never experienced before. You know, we've done Keeley dancing back home, but to be outside with, you know, the whole town and just be, you know, you're on almost on the side of a mountain there, it's kind of surreal to feel like, wow, I'm really here in Ireland, Keeley dancing with just an incredible community of people. And in a place where it would have happened so many years ago I think right. there, there's something wonderful w- oh, yeah. wonderful about that uh, as well uh, Sarah did you enjoy it as well? Oh my goodness yes <laughs> Did you? Yeah same as Claudia was saying back home in the States we do our best to I mean carry on our Irish roots and our culture but that was our first I guess you would say event landing here in Cork mm. um, and so it right off the bat it was just it was like a moment of this is really like where my family came from. This is what they would have done, like you said, back in the day. And it's something that's so cool that it's still carried on to this day. So it and, was incredible. And have you been phoning home, talking to the folks? And oh, my goodness. Yeah. When I can, yeah, because there's yeah. a five-hour difference. But everyone's been texting and calling and how is it and what are you? what have you been up to? And so, yeah, I've been in contact back home with everyone. Okay. And what do you both do back home, Claudia? What do you do? So I'm in university right okay. now. Studying? And mechanical engineering. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I have two years left. Okay. Mm-hmm. And is the long-term goal to stay in the Detroit area or is travel? Most likely, yes, because yeah. there's a big automotive industry there with, you know, Ford companies, stuff like that. So I do... Um, like the automotive industry part of engineering a lot. Okay, well done. And Sarah, for you? What's yeah, so I'm also going, I'm going into my third year of university. I'm studying to become a history teacher, probably secondary. Um, but I'm thinking about getting my master's right after my undergraduate degree in either history or like a higher education degree. Okay. And we actually got to tour the um, University of College of Cork yesterday. Yeah. It looked really nice. I'm thinking about maybe applying for a master's. Well, you've come to a country steeped in history. Yeah, That is absolutely for sure. Did you know each other before this competition? Did yourself Mm -hmm. and Claudia, would you have known each other? Yes, a little bit. We'd see each other around, you you know. And so it was nice to finally get to really know each other and be on this trip together and just have each other to bounce ideas off of. Because that's something that is, is, is big, isn't it, in the States? The Irish community and socialising and being mm. friends. Oh, with, yeah. yeah. Do you do a, would, you be, would you be very integrated into the Irish community? Yes, yes. Yeah. So we, a very busy month for us is obviously March. And, you know, you see everyone every single weekend out at events, you know, parade fundraisers, just getting together for Kaylee dancing, you know, different types of competitions. So... I would say, yeah, we're both very in touch with the Detroit Irish community. 
Well done. Well done. John Paul, what else have you planned? I, I, I take it you're trying to organise and coordinate what the girls are getting up to. Yes, it's great. They've have a, had a wonderful experience. They met the mayor yesterday, uh, Councillor Danny Collins. So it's great that the, the mayor has been so welcoming to the Queens and, and all the former mayors as well. But they're going to get a tour of Norcock today and they're going back to the English market after that in the city. So oh, I think his um, market is great. Yeah, yeah. And they leave tonight. So I said, they, and where are they heading to then? They just head, um, they're going back home. Oh, so, it's yeah. over. Oh, no. Oh, so, so it's a very so, short trip. So it's a very um, short trip. Okay. Yeah, so some of the Lads, uh, both moms are here with the, the girls as well, so they've had a. Oh, I didn't realize time that. Okay, all right. So it's, it's a family event as well. It's a family event, so all it's right. really nice, and it's really nice to see that Cork County Council has been supportive of this, um, um, I suppose, uh, agreement and um, this arrangement. And it's lovely to see that I suppose Cork County Council is going back to Detroit as well on an annual basis. And we'd like to strengthen even further, particularly with our library services, our tourism department, or economic development. And that's what it's all about is having these sister agreements yeah. in place so we can actually boost the economy of County Cork and also boost the economy of 100%, 100%. Are you both aware of the Rose of Tralee competition? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Do you know anyone who entered that or would you enter that or is that something you'd consider? Claudia? Um, Maybe, maybe I'm not sure. You know, I'd have to look up more into it, but I do know about the Rose of Tralee. Yeah, and Sarah, yeah. I'd love to, yeah. yeah it's yeah. been interesting. We've been kind of hearing things as we've been here and just gathering more information. Yeah. It seems like a a really awesome program. Uh, it is. It, it is indeed. Listen, it was fantastic to have you both in the studio. Enjoy the rest of your of your trip. Safe travels home. Uh, Sheila, stay in contact with us. And uh, John Paul, as always, uh, thank you for joining us in the studio. Good morning to you all. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. The Premier League returning this weekend, which means this Saturday, Premier League Live is back on C103.ie with Trevor Welch, powered by Talk Sport. We'll be bringing you live coverage this weekend of Aston Villa versus Everton. That's at 12.30. Arsenal are taking on Leinster. That's at three. And then Brentford uh, versus Man United is at half past five. That's the Premier League Live online with Harvey Norman, your home of the big screen. You can listen Saturdays in the C103 app or you can go to c103.ie Some of your calls and comments coming in now when we've been talking about water shortages and hearing about Irish water asking people to conserve water and how some areas have restrictions in place and Clonakilty now has been the latest uh, town to be added to restrictions they've got nighttime restrictions from 11 at night until 7 in the morning and we know going forward if this dry spell which is set to to continue with little or no rainfall we know that there could be more restrictions around the country and there's at least 60 areas that Irish Water have on a watch list so 60 areas that they're concerned could end up needing water at restrictions put in place we got a slew of calls in from people whenever you mention water saying what about the leaks and Irish Water are constantly saying please report the leaks and they'll get teams out as quick as they can to repair them getting calls in this morning to say that in Liscarroll, the water is still flowing down the road. Halfway between Newton Chandram and Dramina, we're told there is a leak. And in Charleville, there is a leak near Smith's Lane. And all of the people who contacted us about those areas say, yes, they have reported the leaks. Uh, in many cases, more than once and nothing has been done about it. 0818 103 103. Anna says, Patricia, when you're talking about Irish water putting in water restrictions in Clonakilty and the surrounding areas, it completely astounds me 
why people continue to wash cars. The amount of cars washed in Clonakilty and Bandon, according to Anna, is disgraceful. I don't care if they have their own water supply or not. It's nothing short of wastage and is totally unnecessary, particularly when the weather is so hot and we are about water restrictions. And I'm wondering, do people stop and think about watering their cars? Do you? Would you normally be somebody that washes your car every week? But because of what's going on at the moment, are you considering not washing the car? Your thoughts are welcomed on that. Also, some comments in on the puck and the goat in puck fair being hoisted up the 50 feet. Uh, he'll be overlooking the town for the next uh, three days. This listener says, Morn- this is Nora in Dramina. This poor goat, this is cruelty and it should be stopped and it should be stopped uh, today. As a goat keeper myself, my goats are feeling the pinch in this warm weather. Uh, I cannot imagine the fear that this poor puck goat being put up that high in that intense uh, heat a day and night. It is beyond cruelty. Surely be to God, puck fair can't be as important as that that they need to do this to this animal. The welfare of the goat surely is more, more important. The, what about animal cruelty inspectors? Is there no one around to stop uh, this? Um, as you said yourself, Patricia, it can be hard to sleep at night with these muggy nights. What it is like? What is it like for uh, animals? I think this is cruelty beyond belief. And that's from Nora. Thank you for that, uh, Nora. And something completely different. This is to do with banking. Listener says, I rang AIB yesterday. I was on hold for one hour and seven minutes. Finally, a lady answered the phone and then she hung up on me. Unbelievable service. They don't want to see you in the bank. I know they don't even seem to want to answer your phone calls. Bank of Ireland, here I come. I hope they offer me a better service. There is the theory and I've heard some banking experts and banking journalists, finance journalists in the main, I've heard talk about this. There's a conspiracy theory that they, yeah, we all know that they, they don't want you inside in the bank branch and when you do go into bank branch they will direct you to a machine and they don't want you speaking to a human being. But there is also the theory that they don't want you calling the branch either and for that reason they leave the phone lines ring out excessively for, for excessive period of time or else they make sure that they don't have a lot of people answering the calls so there will be delays like this listener waiting one hour seven minutes for the call to be picked up only then for the person to hang up on them. The theory being that they want you to do all of your work online and of course if they frustrate people enough if you're too long in a queue in a bank or like that you can't get through to somebody on a phone line or you're waiting for an excessive period of time what they're, what they're saying to you is do your business online and you will be fine and there's a lot of people feel that that's exactly the way the banks are going but is it a good service? Um, no, it's very, very frustrating indeed. And then some people are on about road works going on. Now Don was on to say that the main Boherbui to Mallow Road is closed off today at the square in Boherbui. They're diverting traffic down the Canturk Road by the Comprehensive School. Now, according to Dan, there's no advanced signage or there hasn't been any notification for people to adjust their travelling times accordingly. Is this not typical of Cork County Council, says Dan? Huge volumes of traffic from the west heading to Mallow and on to Cork every morning and to be landed with this crack says Don. So I take it there would have been a number of people late for work if they if they were leaving at their normal time because that was going to put extra time onto their travel journey. Uh, when, you, when you say is this typical of Cork County Council, I would say no. They normally are good to 
advise in advance that, you know, a certain road is going to be closed off. I mean, OK, you can get burst water mains, which we know is happening all the time with Irish water and roads have to be closed off or, God forbid, accidents can happen and roads have to be closed off. But if it's planned works, I really am surprised to hear you say there's no advanced signage or no advanced uh, notifications. We'll see if we can find out from Cork County Council was there any advanced warning and why there isn't signage put in place because that really does uh, surprise me. And then Kenneth in Glanmire was on to say that his partner was coming home from work in, in Ballancolic yesterday so Ballancolic to Glanmire there was an accident unfortunately on the South Link so traffic was being diverted via the city centre but because of the new road and l- l- lane layouts in Cork City it took over an hour and a half for my partner to get from Ballancolic home to Glanmire. The majority of the traffic was going down the South Link Road around the Elysium, then onto the Lower Glanmire Road or along Patrick's Quay. And as you can turn right at Merchant's Quay over Patrick's Bridge to go to McCartan Street or to get you onto the N20 to Mallow. I understand they wish to make the city more free flowing for public transport, but we need a lot more public transport options before they implement these changes. And uh, Kenneth and Glamour is making the point, if this was what it was like on a summer's evening at 27 degrees with no children at school, what is it going to be like on a wet, rainy November evening? Oh, don't even want to think about it. I have heard some criticism of the new changes and the new traffic arrangements. And I'm, I, I take it it's just taking time to bed in. And that's the reason that they've done it in August. So they're doing it before the schools uh, go back. But I have heard some criticism. I have heard of other people saying that it's making the, the traffic in the city flow much better. But it's only when something like that happens yesterday and you can never account for that. An accident happens on the South Link that stops, that then causes traffic to be diverted. You can never allow for delays like that, which is just unfortunate. Thank you for your call, uh, Kenneth, to 0818 103 103. And Melissa was also on to us. And actually, thank you. I think Melissa sent on this picture of flowers being vandalised last night in the city centre. I just absolutely hate to see this. Melissa says, I work in the city centre and this morning on my commute and then walk to work, I was appalled to see the flowers located in the city centre all torn up and thrown on the ground. It's sad to see this as they look beautiful. I have seen this off Patrick Street and on Emmett's Place near the Opera House. And there, if you if you're in the city, you'll know there are these gorgeous, there's, I'm just looking at the picture, one, two, three, kind of four large containers for flowers and they're placed one on top of the other and then they're all planted up with all the beautiful summer bedding plants so it's almost like a waterfall of flowers the colour's absolutely beautiful and the photograph that has been sent on is just it's outside Costa it's just shocking somebody really with nothing better to be doing literally just pulled out all the bedding flowers and it wasn't that they were in need of some flowers to bring home to their own garden because they've literally just tossed them on the ground and left them it really really is it's a, it's an upsetting sight to see and the poor old council workers now who would have put so much work into planting up those planters and having them looking beautiful for both the people of Cork and the visitors who would be coming uh, to the city it's just it's horrible horrible to see it and actually was 
was there was another call in was it John O'Donovan was on to us from the city it was about the flowers being destroyed he says it is an absolute disgrace but he says guess what why is it happening we don't have enough Gardaí on the beat John is also questioning who's checking the CCTV cameras surely if somebody was monitoring the cameras they would have seen this happening and then if they did they could have come out hopefully and uh, stopped it also you've people from all over Cork going into the city centre to have a meal and a new problem that John says is happening lately is they're approached by people wait for this who are openly openly saying that they're selling items that they've just stolen from a local shop and they're selling it on to people who are out enjoying a meal at a discounted price John says he's heard of this happening and he feels it's going to turn people off going into the city centre if it continues and the knock on effect to the economy in the city centre. He said it really is crazy and it needs to stop. Can you imagine that? Somebody coming and openly saying I'm after robbing this out of a shop I'll sell it to you it's on sale for 50 euro and I'll give it to you for 20 which would, would you buy it of course don't because that's only encouraging them uh, to keep doing what they are doing that is shocking to hear that that's going on John thank you uh, for your call the lights the Christmas lights in Clonakilty that we've been discussing on the programme this week and we said that we put a call or an email into Cork County Council to find out well we wanted to find out why they have decided to no longer store the lights for the town of Clon, put up the lights and then take down the lights and why are they throwing it back on the Chamber of Commerce in Clon to do it themselves. Now I've just got a reply. This isn't quite the reply to the question that I wanted put to Cork County Council and they say Clonakilty Chamber of Commerce applied to the West Cork Municipal District Immunity Grant Scheme for funding towards the erection, maintenance and connection of the Christmas lights for November 2022 and dismantling of same in January of 2023. The immunity grant scheme was assessed, reviewed and approved by the Municipal District of West Cork and subsequently Clonakilty Chamber of Commerce was allocated and have accepted a grant of €10,000 which is approximately 20% of the entire immunity grant scheme funding available in 2022 for immunity type projects in the West Cork Municipal District. End of the answer from Cork County Council. That really doesn't tell me anything. That just tells me the Cork County Council that the Chamber applied for the grant and of course they applied for the grant when they were told this is the only way that they're going to get lights in Clonakilty. But the €10,000 as we discussed on the programme is not going to be enough to cover the funding of the lights and now it means that the Chamber of Commerce in Clam are going to either have to go out and fundraise or they're going to have to go door to door and ask businesses to contribute towards the cost of the lights. So it isn't explaining why Cork County Council have decided to stop putting the lights up taking the lights down and storing the lights uh, as well so that's not the answer that we are looking for we're back on to see if we can get further detail from them 0818 103 103 lines open C103 Jobs Ward personnel, they are looking for experienced ground workers in Cork. You need to call 021-233-9120. A childcare assistant is required to work in Carrick Navarre. QQI level 5 is essential. Emails please to tracy38murphy at yahoo.co.uk. A multi-drop delivery driver is wanted to work in the Butterfield area called John 87 2570718 and Maxall in Clonakilty. They're looking for fresh food assistance. Please apply with CVs to maxallclon at gmail.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is 
C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. With the declining and age profile of Irish priests, church goers will start to see more and more services led by lay people. And in recent years, many people will have noticed increased numbers of lay funeral ministers at funerals. This morning I'm joined by two of those lay ministers from Bantry. I'm joined firstly by Maura O'Flynn and in a couple of minutes from the Balancholic Parish I'll be joined by uh, Michael O'Leary but Maura O'Flynn uh, joins me first. Good morning to Maura. Good morning Patricia. And uh, thank you for, for taking our call. I suppose we'll start at the beginning. When did you become a lay funeral minister for the Parish of Bantry? In 2014 um, I, I was asked by the parish priest at that time. So as far back as then? Yes. Uh, and funeral ministry, lay funeral ministry has been happening in the diocese since 2011. First group started in 2011. And did you have any qualms about taking up the role? Nervous, obviously, at, a, at the start. But, um, you know, there is formation and training provided. And, uh, you know, somebody has to do it, I suppose. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, it's a great privilege, actually, to be a funeral minister. Did did your workload increase during COVID times? Because, of course, we were hearing about many of our older priests needing to cocoon. Um, no, because during COVID there wasn't gathering, so there was just a funeral mass at that point. There was a few prayers, maybe neighbours or whatever, but nothing. No, we weren't doing anything during COVID. OK, so just explain what your work entails. At the moment, um, in Cork and Ross, funerals have changed since COVID and well, in the past, we had a rosary removal and funeral mass. We said there might be three days over that. Now, it's one public visitation and um, public prayer after that, which is called the, um, the you know, that's the prayers we need, uh, the vigil for the deceased. And then the next day, the remains are brought into the church to for mass. You know, there's just a one night now. Yeah, and that's not it's done either in the deceased's home if there was a wake, for or example, or yes. at, at a funeral home. So, yes. so that's the role. That's they're that the prayers. The and and am I right in saying more? They are the very same prayers that a priest would have traditionally done at the removal. Is it? They're the same prayers. The removal prayers are slightly different. These are vigil prayers that would have been done in the past as well. Maybe the night of the rosary, and they are the traditional prayers. We um work out of a funeral booklet, book, and all the liturgies are there. They're set liturgies and removal prayers or vigil prayers can be led by a priest or a lay person. And the prayers we do are called the vigil for the deceased. Okay, and then it's the, because the, the, the bodies now no longer go to the church the night before. Unless, yeah, it's, if, it's, if they do, it's a private um, thing. There's no public removal. Yeah, because I know we had some people upset ab- uh, about that and, and particularly some older people who, you know, always had the tradition of spending their last night almost in the church. But that can be facilitated, can it? it, can it, it yeah, but it just has yeah. to be done That's private. That's what our ministry is about, really. It's, uh, you know, that can be facilitated. But from our point of view, we don't have anything to do with to, that. We yeah. the prayers of the future. Yeah. And have parishes embraced the lay ministry well, do you believe? For the most part, yes. I've, like I say, I've been there since 2014. We haven't had, we've had queries, obviously, and questions, but no negative feedback as such. That's great. That really is great. And, you know, as I said at the outset, with declining priest numbers and age profile, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Stay there and let me bring in Michael O'Leary who is in Balancholic playing the, he does the same role but in Balancholic Good morning Thank Michael Good morning Patricia Good morning Maura How are you? Good morning Michael Yeah now you're a more urban area Michael That's correct yes I suppose we were urban area we're now part of the city the city parish now Yeah And when and why did you decide to become a lay funeral minister? Well, I suppose, Patricia, I was involved in the church for many, many years, most of my life. And um, my then parish priest, Father George Romani, God rest him, he invited me to join the ministry back in 2010. Uh, You know, I was a bit uncertain of what we were going to be doing or what our role was. But, you know, I went forward to the funeral formation training where we carried out many nights of formation training in our practical and we came back to our parish as one of ten people at the time that took up the ministry. And as Maura has been outlining, it's it's the vigil prayers you do. Would you ever do the prayers at the burial? Well, in my uh, time as minister, I only I uh, did the prayers at one burial and one cremation. And that's because a priest wasn't available, and was it? I suppose the, no. The burial was. I suppose in the burial, it was during COVID. Um, I'm not 100 percent certain what the circumstances were, but you know, I was actually privileged to go and do the burial for this family. You know, um, in relation to the crematorium, we would have had this was a baptism of fire where we would have had two or three funerals on the day, and logistically, the priest couldn't actually get to all these. You know, so yeah. he asked me, would I, would I, uh, go to the crematorium? And I said yes, but I said I think we should show the family continuity where I would have joined the priest at the family mass or at the mass and we'd have shown the continuity as part of the team, the priest and myself, you know. Mm. So mm. I would have joined the priest and I would have went to the crematorium with the family and they were absolutely delighted. And as I asked Maura about how had, the, had the, her local parish embraced uh, the lay ministry and she, she said it was, it was extremely well. Same in, in your parish? It is. It is, yeah. I've heard personally, I've had no negative feedback. Um, we had, as I say, I'm one of 10 people. And um, like I think when we trained back in 2011, I suppose our first our first point with our parishioners really was that we were commissioned at a Sunday Mass. We have two churches in the parish, so we divided in two teams of five. And we were commissioned by the priest to start our role as ministers. And... That gave the public first insight into this new ministry coming on board, you know. Um, we started off then, and we would have accompanied the priest for a couple of years until we got used to it. So I think that broke the ice, you know, between the, the lay people taking over the ministry and and, the, and not the priest, you know. But I mean, yeah. I suppose the, the most important part of all this is that we're all the one team priests and lay people combined, you know. And you work in pairs, is, is that how it's done? Yeah, we work in pairs of two, yes. So, I mean, in my parish now, I'm the coordinator. I was asked to be coordinator there last year by our current parish priest. And, I mean, he, I suppose the undertaker is the, is the first point of contact with the cold face. He meets the family. He would contact the priest on duty and the priest on duty would contact me. Now, it's my job really then to make sure that I have a team in place for that funeral where I would pass on the details to them. And we'd also let the priest know what team is doing the prayers for that particular person and we'd also leave the undertaker know. It's it's fantastic backup and support uh, yeah, for, for the priests. 
it, yeah, it, it, it really is. Yeah, yeah it's very it really important is. As, as like both both the priest, the lay person, and the undertaker in the combined ministry. Like you know, and I think that's probably the way it has been. You know, it has been fed in that way, and the public are accepting it. Yeah, and I can even see some questions and comments uh, coming in. Maura, this one is for you. Somebody says, Amora is a great lady. She did the rosary with us at our dear mother's wake at home. It really does help the priest. Any bit of support at a funeral uh, really helps. So that's, that is really nice uh, to hear for you, Maura. Um, and, and, and you are very much there to support the bereaved as well, Maura. But that's, we're at the service of the bereaved family. Yeah. Um, we, are, we bring the... the was the support of the faith community to that family at that time, and we're there to work to support them and to work for them, work with them. Okay, a couple of people are asking, uh, Michael, do you get paid for your work? No, no voluntary. No, it's voluntary. It's completely voluntary. Yeah. Well done. Completely well done. Uh, somebody wants to know. Uh, could you ask Maura or Michael? How long does uh, this is Jennifer? How long does training take, Michael? How long does it take? You normally would you would uh, the funeral formation training would take about four nights in the week. We would we would have a night a week, four and weeks. then you would return. But I mean, I think personally, you know, the week a week the formation training is fantastic. But I think your training really starts when you arrive at your first funeral. Yeah, you know, I think preparation and more. I will agree here like that. When you get a call for like, I mean, I give you an example of it. I got a call on Friday evening in my parish for a, a funeral. But the funeral wasn't until Monday night. Now, that funeral is in your head from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, until you visit the family and you're going to do the prayers. So you are doing a lot of preparation. You are preparing the week you are on. And, you know, I would sit down and go through my prayers, go through my funeral book, and I would, you know. And you, I mean, it's 10, 12 years later, you're still nervous going to a family home. You're still nervous going to a funeral home. And I think the day that we lose that is the day it'll go wrong, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're more you're with people who are at the lowest ebb of their lives. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you see and it as a great honour, though. Absolutely, and as a as a funeral minister, you're um, part of that space where Maura Flynn, the lay citizen or the lay person, isn't wouldn't be welcome at all. So it's a real um, sacred sacred space, and it's a real privilege to be there. And with declining priest numbers, do you both expect to be even busier in the years ahead? Suppose none of us can tell the future. We depends on how things evolve, change, evolve slowly. I suppose, and um, let's let's see what's down the road. Okay, somebody else says, great to see a female involved uh, in the, this role in the church, and wonders are there equal numbers of male and female? There are male, male and female ministers, but really our call to lay ministry isn't being whether we're male or female. It's really because we're baptized Catholics. And all baptism is our call into ministry. So that's where that comes from. It depends then, you know, some people um, feel that they couldn't maybe stand up and lead prayers, but they'd be great to support somebody. It, it varies. And everybody, everybody has their own gifts and talents. Yeah, yeah. And not everyone can do what, what, what you do. That uh, That is true. But then somebody else could be with us that would be really good to support the family or we're very empathetic like that. It's not all about leading the prayers either because there's a conservation ministry in there as well. Okay, somebody is making the point that um, uh, 
when you look at the church now after COVID, ministers of the Eucharist are back, readers are back, um, but altar servers are not back yet. Uh, would either Michael or Maura know why altar servers? Are altar servers not back in any of the churches yet, Michael? They are in some. Yeah, I thought they are too. I'm sure. Yeah, they are, yeah. They're yeah. back in our own parish, yeah. Uh, yeah it, I, it, it absolutely, it depends, I suppose, on the, on the individual um, uh, priest. OK, yeah. and Michael, are you always looking for new parishioners to get involved? Yes, yes, always, yeah. Um, we will, in the autumn coming in now, we're actually in our own parish looking for new people to get involved, both, as Maura said, both male and female. Um because of a population of, of 20, 25,000 people who do need, you know, you need, a, I suppose you need a break from funerals too. You don't want to be, you don't want to be doing funerals every day of the week, you know. Yeah, so the, it's, yeah it's the very more. Important, it's very important to have more pairings, you know. Yeah, well, the bigger the team that you have, then the, the less work the teams will, will have to do. Yes, yeah. But yeah, and it's balanced out and, you, you know, you're not... You can you can concentrate more on your individual funerals rather than having a you know I suppose it's very important one really going back to the one with support there where as we work in pairs the two we support each other and I suppose one very important one is like who supports the priest for many years you know the priest is a single person going out doing funerals there and in many parishes they get a lot of funerals per week you know and that's fairly tough on a guy you know yeah yeah and they're so a good. A good, it's, it's a great one now for us as well, you know, to ask the priest, how are you, Father? Like, how are you keeping, you know, which is a great one. And there was a time where a priest went back to the parish house and there might have been three or four other priests, whereas now they're returning in the main t- to an empty yes. house. Yeah, that's a really and good it's point. it's very important, like, we're blessed with the guys we have. We're, we have a good team of priests, so we're blessed with them, you know, and I think it's very important, you know, to keep... Ask these guys how they are as well and how they're feeling. You know? Okay, well said, well said. Listen, um, continue good luck in the work that you do and, and well done for volunteering. It's, as I say, it's it's not the easiest of roles, uh, but you both seem to be doing it so well and for such a long period of time at this stage. Uh, so well done to both of you. And uh, thank you for joining us on the programme. Thank you. You're very welcome. Good morning Thank to you. you. Bye bye. Maura O'Flynn is a lay minister in Bantry, and Michael O'Leary is a lay funeral minister in the parish of Ballancolic. As I say, we're going to be seeing more and more lay people involved in work in the church for sure. Uh, Joe says the Vatican will have to change their minds when it comes to priests. We need female priests, or at least allow married men who would like to become uh, priests. They should all be allowed to be part of the church. The Vatican, at the end of the day, are the ones running the church if they, but if they keep going the way they are going we won't have a church left and remember wasn't it only last week or the week before I mentioned the Archbishop of Dublin he was at some service that he was given he was saying to to people in the diocese take a look at your priest it might be the last priest that you'll see that when that priest goes there'll be nobody to replace him and they, you know there will be churches that we won't even be able to have masses on and we already know in Cork and Ross they are making these families of parishes so parishes will be sharing a priest we simply don't have enough priests within the Catholic Church 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Wildlife and conservation experts are celebrating the first successful breeding by an Irish bred white tailed sea eagle male in over a century. To fill us in on this exciting news, I'm joined by Claire Herdman, who is a conservation ranger with the National Parks and Wildlife Service for the Beira area. Uh, good morning to you, Claire. Good morning, Patricia. Now, tell me all about this little chick. 
Okay, well, to start with, he's not very little. <laughs> he has, uh, by the time they fly the nest, they're the same size as the adult. So he has a wingspan of over two meters and he weighs about four kilos. So he's not most people's idea of a chick. He's, he's big. So, um, yeah, his story is his mom has been in Glengariff for a few years nesting, but her partner disappeared in 2020. So young Brendan, the first time dad this year, turned up um, kind of close to Christmas um, the year before last. And um, yeah, he's done the business. They laid an egg and he's, yeah, because often the first time they breed, they don't breed till they're four or five. They, you know, they take time to develop. So and often the first time they fail. But yeah, I think he did really well. He was really good at bringing fish for the chick. Um, there's plenty of fish there down in Glengarth Harbour. And yeah, so... So, so when they pair up, do they mate? Do they stay together then? The parents, yes, the adults normally pair for life. Ah. Um, but obviously if something happens to one of them, um, they can either move on or if another bird turns up, they might stay where they are. So normally it's the male that would stay. In this case, the female, she stayed and, yeah, Brendan turned up. So And they've, they're actually in a different nest from last year. Um, it's in a similar area, but they, they did actually move. I think he probably wanted to put his mark on the place. And rather than and she might have wanted to leave her past behind. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, back in 2020, I think I spoke to you, yeah, that when the male disappeared, yeah. we don't know what happened to him um, when the chick was only two weeks old. So she had to raise that chick on her own. And we the only way she was able to do that was because we were providing extra fish for her so she could feed the chick so and did um, that, that that chick survived that chick yeah it was the neighbor she was huge she was 6.8 kilos um when we we fit them with satellite tags the young ones so we can see where they go so we know that the neighbor who fledged from Glengarriff in 2020 is now in county mayo um so she's hanging out there with another young eagle um so that's what happens after they fledge they stay around with mom and dad for a few weeks or even months learning how to how to fish and so on and then eventually they'll head off on their own and the, and the parents stay and hopefully uh, nest again you know breed again the following year and it's it they it's one a year is it well that's a good question like we know especially when we had the camera on the nest in 2020 that there was actually two chicks to start with and i think that's quite common that there's two chicks but just for various reasons, maybe inexperienced parents or lack of food, the, one of the chicks doesn't make it. So so the most normal situation is one. But we had, the, yeah, Brendan is the first Irish-bred male to have a chick, but there's an Irish-bred female who's had chicks, and she actually had triplets last year. So so triplets is possible. Um, um, Do they all survive? They did, yeah. Oh. She had triplets and they all survived. So, yeah. That was tough work on, on behalf of the parents. And just remind, <laughs> remind us about Brendan and, and his heritage. History. So the whole Eagle project is part of a reintroduction program because they became extinct over 100 years ago. So chicks have been, been brought, brought in from Norway and they're held in cages until they're ready to fly and they're released. So that started in 2007. So... Some of those first birds brought in now their chicks are old enough to breed. So that's what Brendan is. He's his parents were two birds that came from Norway, um, but he hatched on the ring of, ring of Kerry, the Ivra Peninsula, back in 2017. So um, 
So and then moved himself from the Ring of Kerry yeah, to Glengarry. Yeah, he was very much a home bird. He spent most of the time in Cork and Kerry. Like we have some young birds, like for instance, two of the young birds released last year um, are in Scotland. So some of the birds will travel huge distances. Yeah, but even friends. even the even the chick that went to Mayo. Exactly, yeah. that went to, and she once she she took a long time to leave Glengarriff, but when she did, she literally flew to Mayo in a day. So they can make long journeys. Whereas Brendan, yeah, spent most of his... I think he hardly crossed the border out of Cork and Kerry. He possibly just dipped <laughs> into Limerick. I love the idea that he's a home bird. And, and you're saying that both parents are very attentive. Yeah, mum was very protective because once the chick gets to about five weeks old, they can regulate their own temperature. If the parents bring a fish into the nest, the... The, the chick is able to hold the fish down with its talons and actually eat it. When they're younger, they can't really, they're a bit like toddlers, they don't really know how to hold the fish down and they're trying to pull at it and the fish is moving. And So it takes a little while before they can feed themselves. But in Glengariff, yeah, pretty well until the chick fledged, mum was often there, perched on the top of the nest tree, keeping an eye on the on her chick, whereas dad was much more off out there catching fish and kind of, Sort of, yeah, a bit more relaxed about the the whole thing, you know. But so. Was providing for his little for for his little family, and you deliberately kept the news quiet. We kept it quiet just partly because, well, that was the main reason because it was his first time um, nesting, and we were just a little bit worried. You know, Glengariff is a busy place out in Glengariff Harbour, and just a bit worried that he might just get a bit spooked if there was a lot of activity and a lot of people were trying to see them. So we just felt like was keep it quiet, give him every chance possible to, um, to to rear that chick, and and then even after he the chick fledged again, we you know it takes a little while before they're confident flyers. So like now we can see from his satellite tracks that he's you know he's flown to the mainland a few times, so we know that he can fly away if he doesn't like what's going on. <laughs> so but he's still hanging around. He's still he's still yeah he'd probably be around Glengarriff now at least for another month. Um, and if people look to the skies, why, 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 are they very distinctive? They're distinctive just because of their sheer size. Yeah. Um, and they tend just to soar rather than flap. Um, because for a big bird, it takes a lot of energy to go flapping around. So they tend to just soar. So, you know, you might see them over the top of the mountains. Or in Glengariff Harbour, they have a few favourite places where they perch. So, you know, if you take one of the ferries or one of the boats in the harbour, you may be lucky and spot one of them when you're heading out to Garnish Island or um, but yeah you really need you know for big bird they can spend a lot of time sitting around doing nothing so you really need to have patience and a pair of binoculars and just kind of keep looking and, isn't, um, isn't that what bird watching is all about it is all about the, the patience but the bird and it adds to the thrill you know yeah. it's, like, you see them, it's not like going to a zoo where they're just there it's like you see them, yeah, you're, you really are privileged. And, and there's other places in Ireland you could see them, like in Killarney or on Loch Derg. So just, it's always worth keeping an eye open wherever you are along the, the West Coast. You and know. the birth of this chick is really showing the success of the, of the reintroduction project. Oh, yes. I mean, that's really the exciting thing to see this next generation um, coming on. And, and when you think about it, chicks coming from Norway that were released, like, no one's taught them to hunt. They're just kind of let off and have to make their own way in the world. So the survival rate then of the second generation, like Brendan, where they've been taught by their parents how to hunt is, is 
is generally higher. So once we're getting into this stage where they're having their own chicks, yeah, it's really a sign that it's that it's working. And um, yeah, and people have been really positive. Like here on Barra, you know, we have places where, like the local farmers, for instance, keep an eye on them, let us know what's happening if they see the birds starting to build a nest up again, or if they think that the egg is hatched. So yeah, it's really nice to see that kind of. Once people get used to them, the kind of acceptance, actually, this is, yeah, a sort of certain pride. That yeah, yeah, back yeah, in this area. Is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I saw the, the Taoiseach the other day releasing young uh, uh, eagles at three sites across Munster. Could one of those be a potential partner for this new chick? They could, but as I said, it takes like four or five years before they breed. Like, like Brendan, who's the dad here, is five. So that's typical. Um, they're called white-tailed sea eagles. But to start with, the tail is just brown. So it takes a little while before they're fully mature and they get the white tail and so on. So, um, But yeah, hopefully this year... Oh, you know, like the female in Glengariff is uh, 11 years old and Brendan's five. So, you know, it's not, it's not like humans. <laughs> people said, you know, so he could pair up with an older female. You never know. Yeah. Um, but, um, he, yeah. Might, he might but be like he's starting into the older birds. You never, yeah, you, never you, never you never know. You never know. You never know. And the females are much bigger than it's kind of interesting. It's a little bit the other way around. The females, you know, like the female could be like about six um, kilos and the male's about four kilos. So the, the female, yeah, they're, they're the, they, they tend to be the dominant of the, of the pairs for yeah. sure. The matriarchs. I, I just think Absolutely. it's I just think it's lovely that they've paired up successfully had have a chick and hopefully this will be the first of many for Brendan. And is it Black P is the... Yeah, some some chicks have names. Sorry, some of the birds have names, some don't. Okay. um, So she, her, she actually has a wing tag that identifies her, which has a P on it. Okay, that's it. Black. The black was the year. All the birds that came from Norway in 2011 have a a black tag. Well, we congratulate Brendan and Black P on on their successful chicken. Here's the lady, the first of many. Listen, pleasure talking to you, Claire. Gorgeous weather. Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you in around Glengariff today, or where are you? I'm in Glengariff. There's not a cloud in the sky. Uh, it's absolutely stunning. It's uh, beautiful. Lots of people just wandering around, enjoying the sunshine, enjoying the lush greenery of Glengariff. Um, you could not be in a nicer scene. place. Watching the seal. Of course, we have the harbour seals here in Glengariff, which is always lovely to see as well. So, yeah, it's definitely a place worth, <laughs> place worth visiting. It is indeed. Enjoy. And Claire, thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Okay, bye for now. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. Claire Herdman there, Conservation Ranger with the National Parks and Wildlife Service for the Beira area. You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Somebody's been on actually talking about Westlife, wondering will Boss Aram be putting on extra buses on Friday and Saturday for the two Westlife concerts. This particular listener will be getting on the 245 bus that serves Mitchellstown for Moy and Rathgormick to Cork and wondering will there be extra buses. We've just emailed Boss Aaron and if they get back to us before the close of the programme today we'll bring you an answer on that. So hang in there for that. Okay, some of your calls and comments coming in. We were talking earlier when it was Melissa I think kicked it off Melissa sent in a photograph of the gorgeous flowers in the centre of Cork City and somebody last night 
with just too much time on their hands, decided to rip out all the gorgeous bedding plants. And it wasn't that they were in need of bedding plants for the garden at home. Simply just dumped it on the footpath. Just absolutely shocking. I mean, a few other calls as well in from people saying, what is going on in the city centre? We need more Gardaí on the beach. This antisocial behaviour has to stop. Well, that's prompted Marie to say, Patricia, I was in the city centre yesterday and I witnessed a man who was begging. But he was urinating in a vacant doorway on Patrick Street. Marie says the smell of urine along the street was disgusting and you could just imagine on a fine warm day and when I started reading Marie's text I was thinking of those two lovely young girls that we'd in from Detroit, the, the Queens of Detroit and you know they come into Ireland and they, God what an image if they were walking down the street to witness that and, then, and the smell of the urine on a warm day. Anyway, I don't think they were in the centre of the city. They're heading up there today. Uh, Hopefully they won't witness anything like that. Then Marie says, I also then saw an elderly lady who, bless her heart, was sitting down on the footpath. Uh, It could have been following a collapse or maybe it was just the heat. She was on Oliver Plunkett Street. She was being attended to by an ambulance crew with a young fella looking on from the other side of the street, taking pictures of it all. A a guard that did actually approach him. What are we becoming? Thanking you, says Marie. Two shocking things to witness on a trip to the city centre for sure, Marie. Thank you uh, for your call. What are we becoming? I don't know. And where is it all going to end? I don't know. On the banks and the listener who was very frustrated, an hour and seven minutes on a call to AIB and then a lady, very kindly, answered the phone. Part of her job, don't you don't answer the phone. And then they hung up on our listener and just the frustration of it all and we were just making the point is that you know there is the anecdotal evidence that that's what the banks are doing they'll make you wait longer on the phone or they'll put you into an excessive long queue inside in the branch whole idea is they don't want you going into the branch or if you do go into the branch they want you to deal with the machine and uh, they don't want you ringing Uh, what they want you to do is to do everything online. Heidi says Tricia if banks or indeed any other company behaves like that towards its customers then it's time for us to use our feet take our business elsewhere they'll soon sit up and take notice then if there's no money coming into the bank or there's no money coming into the business people power can and does work and when you look at the outcry when AIB were, were going to make 70 of their branches cashless and it was people power won on that and at the time people said actually they won't even listen and they did and they changed their minds so yeah Heidi you are right and then just a kind of a tip to anybody who does need to connect with their bank and they can't do what they need to do online and you can't do everything online there are some times where you do need to speak to a human somebody's saying that the helpline that is available inside in the bank branches it's the best and the quickest way to speak to somebody because obviously they've those manned all the time so that's a good tip for anybody else and indeed our original listener who obviously still hasn't got her problem sorted out with the AIB if you can get into a branch if there is a branch close by to you if you can get in there and use they've all these help phones you'll see them in all bank branches rather than you sitting eyeballing somebody they'll sit you on a phone and you can speak to well, at least you're speaking to a human I suppose which is the which is what people want to do. Thank you for your call to O or your text to 0862103103. A couple more commentary coming in about the goat in Puck Fair and the wild uh, goat that gets captured every year and then is placed in this kind of a cage and it's hanging over Kilorgan while Puck Fair is on for the three days and people are concerned about the welfare of the animal bearing in mind that we are we have in the midst of a heat wave some of your thoughts Richard said 
would they not put up a stuffed goat in the cage during the festival? The heat over the next three days and even further is going to be unreal. Yeah, you would like to think that they'd come up with something like that. There must be another way of doing it than capturing a wild animal. Eddie says, the higher up you go, the cooler it gets. So maybe the goat won't be experiencing this excessive heat that we are here that we are experiencing here on the ground. Maybe Met Aaron could clarify that. The higher up you go, the co- is is that the way it is? I've no idea. I've, I've yeah, we need a climatologist on uh, for that. And Sinead said, "Here's a good one from Sinead. When you're thinking about that poor goat, my husband works in construction, and he's been advised to do different jobs on site during certain hours of the day." because of the excessive heat we're going to experience. And one of the reasons that my husband has been told to move off site and do a different job on site is because steel can get really warm. So if that goat in Puck Fair is in a cage made of steel and that's what it looks like it is, then this, this, the steel is also going to trap in the heat. And it's one that I hadn't thought about. And someone else said, this isn't the first year that there's been complaints about animal cruelty towards the goat on Puck Fair. And you are right, because I remember talking about this. Concerns were first raised about the welfare of the Puck goat. It was back in, I had to double check, it was back in 2015 when an animal rights organisation said that the goat's capture and confinement was wrong. And at the time they were citing the provisions of the 2013 Animal Health and Welfare Act. Don't know if anything became of it, but I do remember it was 2015 that it was some animal rights group that raised their concerns. But I think it's because we have this heat wave while Puck Fair is on, which is fantastic for the organisers of Puck Fair, which is a great family-run festival. And many people go back to Kilorglin and they arrange holidays around this time and, you know, they partake in the festival. And you have to think of the festival committee, who, like all other festival committees, they are uh, volunteers. There hasn't been any Puck Fair for the last couple of years because of the pandemic. So they're obviously putting an awful lot into the fair this year and they're delighted that they're getting the warm weather. But... The downside to it is what's the that people are seeing from an animal welfare uh, point of view. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. John Paul taking your calls. Uh, we will be looking for your gardening questions as well, but hold off on those while uh, John Paul is organising and selecting our winner for our competition with uh, West Life. While we're waiting for the caller to be put through, we'll do this. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Ross Garbery Family Festival, which is underway this uh, week. Today, Wednesday, there is a sandcastle competition that's been held during the day. And then Patrick O'Sullivan is playing at the Celtic Ross tonight with doors opening at 9pm. Ballinhasic Community Development are holding a closed collection in the Marion Hall in Ballinhasic. It's to raise funds for the Marion Hall car park. Now bags can be dropped off until the 27th of August and you can drop off bags on Tuesday and Thursday from 7 to 8.30 and then on Saturdays from half two to four. Used rewearable clothing, shoes, bags, towels, sheets, blankets, curtains and duvet covers. But please note they're not collecting duvets or pillows themselves. And Cork Craft and Design annual showcase exhibition is on in the Old Mill in Castletown Roach. It runs until the 20th 2nd of August 
and the opening hours are Thursday to Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. 0818 103 103. We're looking for your gardening questions. You can also start texting and WhatsApping your gardening questions as well to 0862 103 103 because we are no longer accepting texts for our West Life competition. The song that I played was world of our own. Ashley Noonan is in Ballyvalan. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. Did you, did you enter our competition? I did. I did. Wasn't expecting a call back, but here we are. Delighted. And are you a Westlife fan? I am very much so. They were actually my very first concert, I think, when I was definitely still a fan. Okay, um, your, your, line, your, line, your line just faded there a little bit. It was the first concert when you were what age? When I was about five, oh. I think it was, yeah, my, my mum and my aunt actually surprised myself and my cousin um, down in Ministry. I think they were playing yeah. there. So yeah, very first uh, concrete experience. And have you seen them since? I have. I've seen them a couple of times over the years. Um, I actually did attend their show recently in Dublin, um, kind of very last minute, and they were amazing, so... We'll only be delighted to go back and see yeah, them. Yeah, they, they, by all accounts, Ashley, are stunning live. They, they really are, yeah. And you know what? It's just really nostalgic as well. It's lovely, it's great. And I feel like they really put on a show, yeah, um, yeah. which is really good. Yeah, and I, I love the fact that it was the first concert you ever attended because it's one of those things, uh, I guarantee you when you're 80, when somebody says, what was the first concert you ever attended? Everybody remembers their first concert. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's something really special things. about it. Well, you've got yourself a pair of tickets Saturday night. Brilliant. So who, so who, who will you bring with you? Um, you know what? Sixteen, and I'm like, God, oh, I didn't know the sixteen-year-olds of today were Westlife fans, but like, she somehow knows the song. Um, so I'll bring her, and we might get my boyfriend to take it too. He's lucky. Okay. So well done. <laughs> well done. Well, listen, uh, enjoy because that's what it's all all about, and uh, thrilled for you. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thanks a million. Thank you. Bye. Bye. you too. Ashley Noonan, uh, Bally Villan, our winner of our Westlife tickets. The Westlife tickets, by the way, are for the Saturday night uh, concert. We have more Westlife tickets to give away across our shows today. So you're listening out. Nick at some stage will be playing a Westlife track. And as Ashley just did there, you need to text or WhatsApp him the name of the song. That's the important bit, along with your name and address. And who knows, your name could be coming out of the hat like Ashley was and you could be winning yourself a pair of uh, tickets. Texts and WhatsApps now available by the way if you have a question for Peter Dowdle our resident gardener get your questions uh, in 0862 103 103 or you can call John Paul he's taking the calls as well to 0818 103 103 On C103 With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group Want great advice? You know who to talk to cmig.ie I want to give a mention to and send congratulations to some people who did really well at the British Transplant Games, which took place last weekend in the UK city of Leeds. They've been running for over 40 years. The Westfield Health British Transplant Games are a celebration of life. They are a four day event and they attract over a thousand transplant athletes and more than 1,700 supporters. And Ireland is represented by two athletes. Our 
own Mike Johan from Roscarbery, who does our Roscarbery uh, report and a liver recipient and uh, Peter Heffernan, a kidney transplant re- recipient from Scaries in Dublin. Peter, I'm told, won, won a silver medal in the breaststroke and bronze in the freestyle. But our own Mike Cohan uh, was taking part in the five kilometre race walk, an event he has won for the last five years. And he reclaimed his race walking title, winning the gold medal. Mike went on to win two other field events, sh- uh, short putt and discus, taking the gold medal in both. So three gold medals for our own Mike Johan at the Transplant Games. Congratulations to you, Mike. 0818103103. Now, the public should use water responsibly during the current heatwave as the hot weather conditions could lead to shortages. That's the message we've been hearing all week from Irish Water. So to chat to us about how hot it is going to get and how long will it last? I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Alan O'Reilly of Carlo Weather. Good afternoon to you, Alan. Good afternoon, Patricia. Now, please don't say, you're not those ones saying that's too hot. Are you loving it? Uh, well, actually, fully enough, I'm not a hot weather lover, but the humidity isn't too bad, so I'm coping. I'm coping. Okay, okay. Now, every day seems to be getting a degree or two higher, and I know every morning when I'm calling out the weather forecast, it just seems to be getting a degree or two higher. Is that the way the heat, this heat wave is panning out? It is, yeah, exactly. So we have high pressure over Ireland, and we have very little event at all and temperatures are increasing day on day and that's going to continue for another couple of days. Uh, really peaking probably around Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but especially Friday and Saturday. We could see temperatures get up to 30 degrees uh, by Saturday. And for us to officially call it a heat wave, it, it has to be five days of high temperatures, isn't it? Yeah, five days of 25 degrees or higher. So uh, we've had 25 degrees in a few locations already since Tuesday, but a lot since yesterday. So we'll be reaching heatwaves Saturday and if not Sunday for some areas maybe that weren't quite 25 on Tuesday. How long do you expect it to last, Alan? Well, this fine blue skies, lots of sunshine and warm weather will last up to and including Saturday. And we might see some cloud in on Sunday. And there is a risk of some thundery showers on Sunday, but um, it's low risk at the moment. And it will still be warm on Sunday. But temperatures will start to drop back from the northwest later on Sunday. Um, And then next week, it does look like temperatures will drop back and it will turn showery. But the latest weather models still keep it warmer than we would normally see. So you could still see 24 degrees, 25 degrees even, um, up until the middle of next week. But it does look like you will see some showers. OK, but but not a lot of heavy showers. I'm thinking from Irish Water's point of view, they need some really good downpours. Yeah, as do the dairy farmers as well, who are, look, I'm looking at parched grass here in Carlow, and it's the same in many places. I know parts of Cork, the soil moisture deficit is over 50 millimetres, so some very dry ground. And it doesn't look like we're going to see prolonged rain. It does look like showers, but they could be very heavy especially if we get thundery showers. But unfortunately, that kind of rain can result in problems like flash flooding and it comes down so quick it doesn't get a chance to soak in. So, you know, I suppose the the slow, gentle kind of rainfall that really the farmers want and probably Irish water wants, there's no sign of any decent amount of that coming. Would you be fearful that we could have drought conditions in some areas in the coming weeks? 
Yeah, I think that there is a risk of drought, all right. Um, I suppose, especially locally, like even last month when we got heavy downpours in some areas, it, it wasn't everywhere. Um, so some areas have really had a very dry June, um, July and start to August. Now, obviously, there was some rainfall for, for, for some locations and a lot of rainfall in some. But the east and the south of the country, um, it's definitely the ground is very dry and water supplies. I'm looking here at some of the river levels, the water level.ie, and some of the rivers are very low. The River Slaney, which is close to me, is really very low at the moment. So uh, we could do with rain or we could start to see some water issues for sure. Yeah, and I think you're right about because the ground is so dry that even if we do get, you know, cloud bursts, it just doesn't soak in, isn't it? Because the ground for this long period of dry weather, it's just, you know, the ground is really hard in some areas. Yeah, exactly. You just you just get runoff, and obviously that dry ground also beware of is, is fires. Um, you know, be very careful if you're going barbecuing, especially this weekend or this week. Um, the, the, every, everywhere is so dry that all it would take is a small little accident with a naked flame, and you could see a big area of uh, ground going up on fire very quickly. And we've we've also had some um, agricultural fires where you know machinery have caught fire and that. So just everybody needs to. Enjoy the sunshine. I try not to turn these fine weather spells into doom and gloom, but we just need a bit of common sense. Um, so just pond the sunscreen, mind the naked flames, and if you're going on or near water, wear a life jacket and then enjoy it. Good advice, because it's one of the reasons why we saw so many of those wildfires across Europe, wasn't it? It was the the prolonged period of dry weather, and then all it took was an accident, or somebody being stupid and irresponsible, and suddenly you know vast areas of land are under fire. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in Ireland aren't really used to kind of the dryness and that how quick um, that can happen. I've seen it once where a, a ditch went on fire and it spread so quickly, it, it was frightening really. So it is, and especially in the south and the east where the soil moisture levels are so high and the ground is so really scorched at this stage. And be careful out there in that sunshine. You can burn very quickly with those high temperatures. Oh, absolutely. UV levels very high. And I know some people and many people are taught in school that August is the start of autumn, but it's from a meteorological point of view, it's still summer and that sun will definitely burn you very quickly. Okay, all right. So you're keeping in the shade then in Carlo, are you? Well, my ball head needs to be covered <laughs> at all times. <laughs> okay, well, stay in the shade and enjoy, Alan. And as always, a pleasure to talk to you on the programme. Thank you for that. Uh, good afternoon to you. Bye bye. Uh, Alan O'Reilly and his little bald head uh, joining us from Carlo at Weather 0818 103 103. Just on NCTs, uh, by the way, because they report uh, there's been figures released on the number of NCTs, and, and I, I always enjoy reading some of these just to find out about cars and what age cars actually passed an NCT. And would you believe in the last year, a 72 year old car was amongst the nearly 1.4 million cars that were tested are at to sit a re-test and the 72-year-old car passed on its first time out. It didn't need to go for a re-test and that was the oldest car that was tested. There was also three 40-year-old cars but they unfortunately had to go back for a retest. but then they, they did pass and uh, we would often hear from people here when we talk about NCTs people see, see it as a money-making racket but remember it's a private company that operated for the government and it's certainly does generate income when you look at the uh, figures of the almost 1.4 million NCTs that tests that, that happened. 
that raised 76.7 million euro and then nearly a half a million had to go back for a retest there was a charge on that so that raised an extra 13 million euro it's 55 euro to do the test and if you're unfortunate and you need a retest that's 28 euro now about 30% of the retests were free because if it doesn't require the use of the test uh, equipment but 70% of people did have to pay 28 euro for the retesting so we have the 72 year old car who passed first time round there was a 42 year old car a 43 year old car and a 44 year old car who all passed first time which is proving that some of those old cars obviously well maintained are still doing the business when it comes to getting their NCT uh, done. Delays in testing, that led to the most complaints from motorists last year. And the complaints were that they couldn't book online at a before their NCT was actually expiring. Some people, and we know we had some of them here to this programme, were told they were going to have to wait six months or more before an online slot in their county opened up or at their nearest NCT test centre. The COVID-19 backlog, obviously, along with a lack of new car sales and a struggle to recruit staff have left the National Car Testing Service with a backlog, that's according to the Road Safety Authority. And Gardaí have said if if a motorist is driving without a valid NCT and you're stopped by a Gardaí Siakona, but if you can prove that you have a scheduled test date, then a Gardaí will take this evidence into consideration. And that's why we're saying to people, if your NCT is out and you have a confirmed test date, for the next month, two months or even up to six months, have a copy of that with you. Either have it on your phone or print off a copy and have it in the glove compartment so that you can show it to if you are stopped by the Gardaí. And the Department of Transport will continue, they say, to monitor the RSA's progress to reduce test delays closely as part of their ongoing corporate governance uh, province um, process. But it's just the NCT as with you talk to any other garages, the garage I always had been using and using for years, I went to get my car serviced only to discover that the garage is closed. And when I met and spoke with the owner, I was saying, oh, goodness, I didn't realise you'd closed down. They said that he, they said he had. And he said his problem was that he couldn't find qualified mechanics to work. So garages are having a problem with this. But the knock on effect is the National Car Testing uh, Service are finding it increasingly difficult to uh, recruit sufficiently qualified mechanics to meet the demands. So you've got that added into the COVID-19 backlog, added into the fact that people who in the past would traditionally have moved their car on and bought a new car, but because there is a lack of new cars as well. So a little bit like a perfect storm for NCT uh, centres, but a lot of money certainly raised. 76.7 million on the original test and then an extra 13 million on the poor dears nearly half a million of them who had to go back for a retest. 0818 103 103 We are looking for your gardening questions for Peter please. You can call John Paul with a gardening question or you can text or WhatsApp me here to the studio 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Promoter, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Peter Dowd of the Irish Gardener.com uh, joining us on a very, very sunny Wednesday afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you? Uh, I'm very well and enjoying this wonderful weather, but I'm wondering what is it doing to the gardens? 
well, I think it's going to be a voyage of discovery. It's just glorious at the moment, so I think we need to enjoy it. But it's um, it's kind of uncharted territory, really, for us, isn't it? I mean, we've had hot, hot periods before, but I don't recall, uh, like, I don't know how extended it's going to be, but certainly a week or two of, of close on 30 degrees in some parts. So it's, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't imagine it'll last too long. I think we should just enjoy it. I, I, I was bold enough myself to go away last week, as you know, and I came back to wilting hydrangeas and plants under stress. Um, so they have needed a soaking, but uh, we all have to, we do have to be conscious, of course, of the amount of water we're using. I know there's no restrictions or hosepipe bans yet, but I mean, we still have to be sensible about it and and, uh, and try not to waste water. Not that I think watering plants is wasting water, but um, we do have to be careful. I think being, being very specific on what we water, uh, we certainly shouldn't be out there watering lawns or anything like that. They'll be fine. But if you've planted anything newly, in the, and what I mean by new here is in the last 12 months, they will need watering. Bedding plants will need watering. Vegetable, edible plants will need watering. But it is important to be specific on what we're watering at the moment and not just drenching the whole garden. Okay. All right. I'm keeping a very close eye on my tomatoes, which are just yeah. glorious this year. I'm just waiting for them to go red. Uh, but anyway, we'll hang in there. Okay. We sent an, e- an email on to you that came in from Anne, who sent us a picture of one of her apples. She said, Peter, please have a look. The apples grow beautifully and then this happens, thanking you. And it's a picture of an apple that looks fine size and all of that but then it's ugh, gone rotten yeah and it's quite a common problem really Trisha it's just called brown rot which is kind of a very descriptive way of, of, of how it looks or term for how it looks and lots of people will I mean they can't see the photograph but listening if, if, if many people will resonate with it when they it's a perfectly formed apple it's grand and then there's this patch of brown fungal looking growth in it and you know desperate looking and it is a bit of a problem as I say it's quite common but it is a problem it's a fungal infection and uh, it, it comes it, it gets into the apple the fruit of the apple normally well not normally but always actually through a wound so a wound could be a bird pecking at a wasp making a hole in it the coddling moth nesting in it uh, anything that makes a physical wound in that fruit and then this uh, the, the fungal spores get in and it starts rotting and it, it spreads it spreads very very easily and quickly unfortunately so if there's apples touching if there's another fine apple touching that apple it'll spread into it quite quickly but also and perhaps more importantly you know if, if that rotten apple is rubbing against the bark the spores can get into the bark and, and start forming canker cankerous growth which is more problematic the the only thing to do with it really is is what we call cultural control, which is a, a kind of fancy way of saying to to get rid of any of the diseased apples. So you, you have to be quite diligent. Go out there and and remove any of those apples which show signs of that brown rot uh, into the compost bin. Um, not your own compost bin, actually, because that, that probably wouldn't get hot enough. You, you know, actually, the rule. I'm going back to my college days now. The rule book says, with when you have brown rot in an apple, if you're burying it in your own garden, you need to go at least a foot a foot deep. Um, but if you're putting it in a, a kind of your brown bin, the local authority compost bin, that should be okay, uh, or that is okay. Um, but it is quite important to remove them because it will only spread in the tree and make it much much worse. Okay, so be careful with that. Breathe in, Mallow said, would you please ask Peter, what is the gentlest weed killer I could use in between my patio slabs? Something has self-seeded in between them and it's in a terrible mess at the moment. I wish we didn't have this question, Trish, <laughs> because I, I, the gentlest or the most gentle weed killer, it's a very difficult one to answer. And as you know, I don't, I don't, um, 
recommend the use of any weed killers really however one has to be practical about things too like you know in that situation so i'm not i'm not going to i'm not going to give a recommendation as such but i'll just give my my knowledge such as it is right and that is that 90 percent of the weed killers on the market do contain uh glyphosate which is you know the, the one that everybody is anti at the moment now there, there's one world organization I'll get this wrong but you have something like the WHO and then you have another United Nations body or another EU body which are conflict, giving conflicted opinions on this one is saying it's probably carcinogenic and one is saying it probably isn't carcinogenic so the truth lies somewhere in the middle I don't claim to know the answer I don't use it myself anyway uh, glyphosate but then you look at some of the marketed as organic and eco-friendly weed killers but they contain acetic acid which is t1i is vinegar which is actually far more damaging or maybe not far more damaging but it is very very damaging to the soil as well so i wouldn't be fooled by one that claims to be organic and, and these things number one they're not very effective in the long term and number two they can be causing just as much damage so the glyphosate based ones which is in roundup and it's as it's not just roundup as i say it's in 90 percent of the weed killers that are out there is very effective it's safety i think you'd have to do your own homework on it all yeah. i'll say is i don't use it but uh, it's, it's up to yourself after that okay yeah uh, it, it really is okay could you advise please what is the best apple tree to buy now i don't have a garden but i'm hoping to grow apples in a large container thanking you okay well if you're growing them in a large container or a pot that's very doable now if, apropos of what we were just talking about if something's growing in a pot uh, it will need plenty of water because it can't get its own water from the depths of the soil, obviously. So you will need to pay attention to watering anything that's growing in containers. Um, and not just during periods of this extreme heat, but but like any dry period, you'll have to keep them well watered and the fruit will drop. Um, in terms of what to go for, it's not so much the variety that, that's important here. It's actually the rootstock. And without boring it too much, Trish, the rootstock is what determines the the overall height and spread of a plant, of the, the apple tree in this case. Um and without going into the, the, the actual technical details of it, basically what you're looking for is what's called a dwarfing rootstock. So that's, a, as it sounds, a root system uh, that that will never grow, that will produce a plant that will never grow too high, normally under, always under six feet, um, often three to six feet. Um, and then different varieties are grafted onto that rootstock. So the variety can, is irrelevant. It, it depends on the rootstock. Uh, there are dwarf apple trees sold as a brand name Coronet in Ireland. Which are, which are all grown up and around County Wexford there, I think by Springfield Nurseries, um, which are very dwarfing and ideal for growing in a pot. So if you can find a coronet apple tree, as I say, the variety doesn't matter. If the coronet is, is in the name, it means it'll be dwarf and suitable for growing in a pot. So they'd be the ones I'd look for. Okay, hi, uh, Peter. This is Jack in Wilton. Gladiolas, should I take them up? Take up the bulbs after flowering. They're flowering very well at the moment. Or do I leave the bulbs in the ground over winter? I'll give you the textbook answer and I'll give you my answer. Okay. <laughs> the, text, the textbook answer is yes. Uh, treat them as you would the spring bulbs just later in the year, obviously. So let the flower and the foliage all die off and go brown and let all the goodness go back into that bulb. But then lift them out of the ground, probably around kind of September time, maybe October time. Then lift them out of the ground store them, wrap them in a bit of newspaper or something like that, keep them cool and dry uh, until planting out again in February time, February, March, April. Um, that's the textbook answer. 
my answer is I'm a lazy gardener, as you well know, Trish, and I, I, you, I leave them in the garden. You do it with the daffodil and, bulbs as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. So like with the gladiolas, they're, they're not as definite, definitely, as the daffodils. But they, if you leave, let's say, 20 in the ground, you might get 19 or 18 back up next year and it will dwindle every year. But uh, so I always just I leave them in the ground, as I say, because I'm lazy and I, I top them up with a few extras each year. Okay. Good luck. Good luck with that, Jack. Okay. Hi, uh, Peter Imelda. Could you ask Peter the name of the plant whose leaves look like the nettle plant? He showed the plant at the Mallow Garden Festival and on his advice, I purchased the same. I'm happy to say the bees absolutely love it. I just don't know the name of it. Well, I don't know. Is this the same question or was it a different person was asking a similar question uh, the last time I was on with you? And it was Agastache, which is the, the licorice root. Uh, and and, and I, I was showing it in the Mallow Garden Festival and it's a fantastic plant for bees and, and butterflies. And I got it from Green Man Dave. You know, that's obviously not his real name, but that's that's what he calls himself on social media. And I can't for the life of me remember his name. But if you search for him, he has a he has a a plant centre down in West Cork and I'm sure he sells online. So I'm sure a quick Google or Facebook search for Green Man Dave will bring him up. But Agastache is the name is of the, the plant. Name. Okay, this is from James in Churchfield. Could you ask Peter, when is the best time to plant a hedge? Um, I would say not now, James, anyway, because of the drought. So, But most hedges, or sorry, many hedges now are grown in pots, so they're containerized. So that means you can grow them 12 months of, or plant them 12 months of the year. But obviously in periods of extreme drought or extreme dry periods, I wouldn't plant anything because you're just giving yourself the headache of watering. Okay. Um, but then you still have, traditionally all plants were grown in this way, which is bare root. That's before the onset of plastic pots and things like that. So uh, I suppose 50 years ago and more, everything was grown bare root. Uh, and we had nurseries as opposed to garden centres, and they could only lift stuff during the dormant period of the year, which is November to, to March, if you like. And I think it's probably still the best time to plant. Uh, and hedges and trees are probably the last thing now to be still grown bare root. Uh, and it is it is uh, cost effective and sensible, I think, to buy them bare root at that time of the year because they are much, much cheaper. Uh, and you're planting at a time of the year when you're not going to be as as conscious of watering because nature is taking care of it the soil temperature is still warm in the autumn so i would say the best time if you're going bare root the only time in fact if you're doing bare root is sometime between november and and early march i would say okay deirdre in mayfield is growing sunflowers i'm assuming for the first time this year Uh, she said in the last two days due to the heat they seem to have dried up and they look newly dead now she said she has been keeping an eye on them and she has been watering them but she said the very same thing happened last month when we had the heat wave but then they came back to life and looking stunning again she's wondering will it will they come back again this time or do sunflowers just naturally die off at this time of the year well she doesn't say where did they flower did she say they flowered yeah they flowered they're just drooping over and looking practically dead well okay yeah i mean the the thing is the the lack of they, they are an annual plant so once they produce their flowers and set their seeds that's the end of their life cycle now, again, this this intense heat is expediting their demise, if you like. So I would keep watering them because you do want those seeds to set properly. You don't want the plant to die off completely. So if it's one like in my own situation where they haven't flowered yet, uh, I you just keep watering them and, and mulch around the base of them with, with good organic matter to keep moisture around the root zone. Uh, but water them, uh, keep them well staked. If in this case they have flowered, 
and they're just dying off, you're not going to get another flower from them. You might get a few small ones, but it is still quite important to keep them alive just so that so that the seeds develop properly and ripen properly. So I would keep watering them, yeah. And Anne is growing grapes. Uh, she said some of them are gone brown. Any advice, please? It's never happened before. So she's obviously grown grapes in the past. Yes, it's 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 going to be a similar rot to the one I spoke about at the start of your your piece here, Trish, about the brown rot on apples. It's similar with grapes. It's a it's a fungal infection. Um, I would say really the best thing and the only thing to do is get out there. And it might be heartbreaking to do it, but get out there with the secretaries and remove any of the bunches that have this uh, brown rot on them. Um, might be no or would be no harm then with the grapes to give it a, a drench with with copper sulfate mixed with water, which is a broad spectrum fungicide. Uh, it's certified for use organically, so it is safe if you're going to be eating them. But but only about once a year would I use it maximum. Um, uh, but that's what it, that's what it is. And then finally, Teresa is growing rhubarb for the first time this year. Any advice, please? Well, keep it well watered, Teresa. Um, uh, and keep it well watered. Obviously, well at the moment it's it's dormant enough anyway. But um, later in the year, or even now, give it a mulch, like I just mentioned, with organic matter, any good organic material. And this is this is a good tip for all plants at the moment, and in years to come, I suppose we will be be facing more of these periods. Uh, there are ways to counteract drought and drying out, and one of these is mulching. So mulching is just applying an organic matter. Uh, it could be homemade compost, it could be bark, it could be soil, it could be farmyard manure, seaweed, any organic material around the base of the plant. If you put a few inches of that now around your rhubarb or any plant, it will just, it's not going to, it's not magic, but it will reduce the amount of water lost from the soil through evaporation. So that's a very good tip. And during the, the rhubarb, the more you feed rhubarb, the better it's going to do. Give it a good sunny position. And I would feed it with either, as I say, a mulch of seaweed during the winter months, or, or a liquid seaweed feed. So keep it well fed, keep it, I would say, good and sunny. Uh, and really, once you do get it established, it kind of takes care of itself then. Mm. And I have to say, my, it's, it's my favourite jam is rhubarb jam. I think it's is it? it? I do like it, I must love say. It, yeah. Love it. Okay, as always, uh, Peter, thank you for that. Enjoy the fine weather. And uh, thank you and for joining you. us. Uh, g- good afternoon to you. Thank you for that. Thank that you. is uh, Peter Dowdell of the IrishGardener.com. And actually, somebody in the middle of the texts into Peter is saying seeing as we're talking so much about the garden just to remind people to please put out some water for the birds they're particularly going to need it I know we're conserving water but a little boil a bowl of water for the birds please would be most helpful thank you for that I mentioned the NCT and the amount of NCTs and the older cars that passed last year that's prompted a listener to say Patricia guess what the NCT service their office, their main office is in Dublin. They answer the phone. There's no waiting. There's no pressing options. There's a human being at the end of the phone line. They put you on a cancellation list and they, they contact you when a test date comes up at your uh, centre. They are the most helpful staff, says this listener, I have ever come across. You don't get that from everybody. So well done to the staff at the NCT centres and we have, listen, we've put so many people their way, people who are urgently in need of a test. So I'm glad to hear that it is a human is answering at the call. Okay, that's where I have to leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon with a reminder that we are on a free 
Westlife Wednesday where we're giving you a chance to win tickets. You're listening out every hour for a chance where we might play a Westlife song. When you hear it, you need to text the name of the song or WhatsApp it. Okay, until tomorrow, 10, I'm Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. On C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.